you're listening to the Man Overseas Podcast, a show that explores methods and ideas to help you live a bigger life. You will hear interesting stories of how people live, how they save and invest their money, and why having time wealth is better than being a billionaire. If you are entertained, educated, or elevated, be sure to hit the subscribe button. We're just getting started. Now here is your host, Brad D'Antonio. Hi friends, so glad you could join me today. Can I first introduce you to today's sponsor? Do you want your driveway, house, sidewalks, and even garage floor looking like it's never been walked upon? Let me tell you how to get it that way. You call my friends at Low Cost Pressure Washing. I'm going to give you the number twice so you can write it down. Because if you're like me, all righteous and badass, I don't know where I was going with that. Their number is 832-528-4599. They even do pool decks and fences. They've worked on rental properties of mine and done a fine job. That's probably why they're here. Uh, Their phone number, like I said, I'll give it to you twice, 832-528-4599. Now, I realize negotiating is not everyone's forte. It's the reason I incorporate negotiation training into my coaching program. Therefore, you don't have to negotiate with them. Just tell them you heard them right here on the Man Overseas Podcast, and they will apply a 20% discount. How's that? You know how good it feels to save, I don't know, 60 or $80 on a service and take that money you were going to give that vendor or service provider, put it towards your kid's college, or take the wife or mistress on one of those dates where the food and service is so good you never forget it the rest of your life. I'm kidding, of course. (laughs) There's no service that good. But you will not forget low-cost pressure washing. So if you want to support the show and get everything around your home or office building looking fresh, I mean lane switching with the paint dripping fresh, that number again is 832-528-4599. Back to the show. My guest today is Jessica Kind. She is an NFT artist, climate scientist, poet, systemic change advocate. She's also a pansexual woman. Look it up. With a German passport. She's from East Germany. How about that? She considers herself either a European or a world citizen. She dedicates her life to bringing more justice, that's social and environmental justice, into this world that we inhabit. She ultimately wants to reduce the suffering of the injustice system. The global north, she believes, has innovated on the backs of the global south and feels a responsibility to be part of the change that she wants to see. We'll start here. Jessica, is that good? Jessica, I am so glad to have you here. Thanks for coming to this back room of a coffee shop in... Where are we? In Panajachel, Guatemala. Panajachel, Guatemala. We found us a quiet spot in a back room of a coffee shop, and I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. I was hoping we could start with your background. Let me tell you why. If I ask someone where they're from, and of course they could be from anywhere in the world, obviously, but if there's one place that kind of lights me up because I find it so interesting, that place would be East Germany or some former communist country. I'm always so interested in that. And when I met you where you were from, you said East Germany, and you may have seen my eyes light up. What was it like growing up in East Germany? Well, 
I think it was really interesting the way that we met because you asked me where I am from and this question really is resonating with me because I'm always not sure how to answer it. And so, yeah, my passport is German. I was growing up in Eastern Germany. Uh, I was uh, born in 1982, so a couple of years before the reunification started. And I have lived in, in the communist part of Germany enough to see how it affected uh, my family. And of course, over the years, uh, you talk about uh, how that uh, entire East Germany lifestyle kind of uh, uh, is impacting your family and uh, also the future after the reunification. So I grew up with my, mainly with my grandparents and uh, my aunt in, uh, I would say, very poor conditions. So we uh, lived in uh, a multi-family house uh, with four other families. We had an outhouse. That is uh, often something that uh, people don't, uh, uh, don't realize uh, how difficult that might be in wintertime to uh, use an outhouse in Germany where the temperatures in winter are dropping below wow. zero. Yes. And uh, we did had uh, no bathroom in the... You put your bare ass on a toilet seat in an outhouse in oh, yes. the freezing winter? Oh, oh yes. Goodness. And I really didn't like that. <laughs> no, I don't imagine you did. <laughs> uh, and I can, I can say, maybe that's a little bit shameful, but uh, I did pee in my pants a lot at night uh, because I didn't want it to go out. Wow. Uh, so well, that kept you warm, too, I imagine. That, yeah, but only for a short time, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> only for a short time. But, yeah, so uh, we lived in a, in a small flat. We had one room with central heating, which was like a, a little stove uh, that was fired with coal. So every couple of months in winter, we had to shovel coal from uh, the street into, into the backyard. And then every morning, someone had to t uh, fill a bucket with coal and bring it up to uh, uh, light the oven in the, in the let's, let's call it the living room. <laughs> you say bring it up because you said flat. Americans don't use that word. We use apartments. Oh, apartments, so sorry. So what, yes. what floor were you on in this flat? We were on the second floor. Okay, not too bad. It's not too bad, no, but still a, a bucket full of coal is quite heavy, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I can tell you. And uh, so we used the coal for the, for the so-called living room, which was the room where every, everything happened, and for the kitchen. So we had like a, one of those ceramic uh, stoves in the kitchen that was basically fired all day uh, for heating up water, for cooking, and just for keeping the family warm in wintertime. I mean, summertime was different, but uh, I, I really recall winter, and I think that's why I don't like winter at all. That's why I probably live in Guatemala at the moment, because yeah. uh, I can't stand uh, winter and uh, cold, uh, um, cold temperatures. And so did pretty much everyone you know live in a multi-family situation? I would say most of the people that I knew at the time, yes. We also had the typical communist blocks in Eastern Germany, you know, like these really like 10-story building houses, uh, very tiny flats. Uh, usually they were like more luxurious because they had central heating, they had hot water, they had a bathroom uh, per apartment, which we didn't have. I don't recall so many things, uh, but uh, when I talk to my grandmother, she's uh, referring to a lot of things like uh, we had this wooden floor in our apartment uh, where you had like uh, one of those uh, um, panels you could lift up to uh, put some books underneath because uh, there were surveillance in Eastern Germany. And my grandfather, he was a truck driver, so he was working for like a furniture company to uh, export furniture to West Germany. 
So he was really under surveillance. And every now and then they took away his passport and then he was not working for a couple of weeks and then he was also sometimes just disappearing for weeks where nobody really knew what's happening and uh, if he's coming back. So I think it was, it was a very stressful time period for my grandmother because uh, she didn't know if he's coming back. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of things that I think from the perspective of now uh, was very dramatic and very traumatic for my entire family history. And, uh, and we were not an exception. I think we were more like a, a regular household. And so, yeah, I think I definitely benefited from the reunification because I was uh, young enough to uh, adapt to the new system. Mm -hmm. I was in second grade when the reunification happened. And uh, a fun fact here, I was not accepted by the system and I was not accepted by the, by the, by the church as well because uh, the, the communist system didn't allow religion. And so my family was uh, Christian at the time, so the system rejected me because I was religious, and the church rejected me because I'm a bastard, because I, I'm, let's say, like an accident of my parents, and they were not married when I was born. So there was like a double rejection <laughs> in East Germany. That was also part of, uh, of a long story that uh, probably led me to uh, uh, leave the Germany at some point, and at some point also Europe. Any contact with your biological mother or father? Yes, I do have contact with them. We are building a relationship at the moment. Wow. <laughs> and who prompted that? Who initiated that? It was me. I think it took me uh, quite some years to uh, just find my inner peace with myself. And uh, at some point you just realize, well, there is uh, nothing to regret. And my parents were probably also just a result of the circumstances of the system. So um, it's not, uh, not the time to uh, be uh, full of uh, blame. And... Uh, yeah, reconciliation. I think that's a, a big topic in my life, uh, not only personally, but also professionally, mm. is uh, uh, finding peace with, the, uh, with your history. Did you have siblings? I do have siblings, yeah. I have a half-brother with my mom, and I have several half-brothers and uh, half-siblings with my dad, but uh, we don't have much contact. As I said, I was at the accident. My mom was 17 when she was pregnant, so mm. all the other siblings, they came like 10 years after me. So this hidden spot in the floorboard, did you contribute anything to there? Like Anne Frank kind of diaries or anything? No, but there was this children's book, which I really loved from the brother, Brothers Grimm. That was a ch children's book that was, for whatever reason, it was forbidden in the GDR. My grandmother, was hiding that for me under under the uh, wooden panel. For you? Yeah. What is GDR? What's that stand for? Oh, a former German Democratic Republic. Did you know anyone who successfully escaped? I heard stories of people, yes, but I personally didn't know anyone. No. Yeah. No, but there were a lot of stories, like digging tunnels, going with a balloon, fleeing through the green border. Your parents must have shared stories of their friends, especially as you got older, of what they went through, or not your parents, but your grandmother, or whoever was up to sharing stories. Do you feel like, I mean, I felt this way with my grandparents. I wanted to soak up as much life as I could, as much of their lives as I could before they moved on, passed away. Do you feel that same pull, like, there's just so much history there that's so different from the rest of the world. 
Am I alone in being so fascinated with all that? I don't think so, but based on my experience with the people that I know from the time, my family, friends, or friends of my family, better speaking, they don't really want to talk about it. And I think that is uh, partially the problem. There is no reconciliation. There is no peace with the history. Uh, there is so much guilt because uh, when you look at it, you have like World War II, and then you had, which was uh, a dramatic uh, history and a genocide by itself. And then you had the division of Germany with the, the occupation of the entire East Bloc. So people had to adapt to new systems all the time. And I think that, like my, my grandmother, she doesn't like to talk about these times. And often when I start asking questions, she's like, oh, Jess, I don't want to talk about it. Uh, let me in peace with this. And I can understand that to a certain extent. And I think I can understand it much better now that I'm living in Guatemala. Because it's the same here. There was a genocide in Guatemala that uh, was uh, very brutal. There was real massacres that happened here. And so the collective trauma that uh, people still have impede that they can talk about it. And also, if there's no one really listening to their stories, what's the purpose of telling them? Mm. And I think a lot of people that I met here in Guatemala, they feel no one is listening. And I think that's something that resonated a lot with me. And uh, maybe that's also why I'm here by accident or by purpose or consciously. Here with me telling your story or in Guatemala? In here in Guatemala mm. is uh, because I feel I have a certain understanding of uh, what people are going through and what it does it mean to have a, let's say, a poor uplifting and coming from a history of trauma, violence, and not having trust in the system, not having trust in the government, not even having trust in your neighbors. Because, uh, uh, as I said, my grandfather disappeared every now and then. We knew as a family that uh, we were surveilled by the system and most likely by neighbors, because that was an unspoken knowledge of everyone. So you didn't trust your neighbor, because maybe he or she would report you to the system. And so there was a, a lot of isolation, I would say, in terms of creating friendships, creating communities. And I think that makes it really hard to, to survive. And I think that also leaves uh, quite some injuries on your soul uh, oh, over God, a long yeah. time. I would imagine you had no friends, right? I mean, how would you even vet a seven-year-old coming over to play with you? You don't know what's going to be relayed to their parents yeah. what they saw when you pulled the book out from underneath the wood in the kitchen you know well you wouldn't I feel like an ignoramus asking this question but when was the genocide here I would say the the most violent years were in the beginning of the 80s and then the peace ag agreement uh, was in 1996 when you look at uh, psychological uh, healing they say that it needs at least three generations to heal from a trauma so it's too close of, uh, in, uh, in terms of timing, and then also in Spanish there is a saying, no hay paz sin justicia, there is no peace without justice. Mm -hmm. So as long as the government, or yeah, the government doesn't acknowledge that this happened, and is starting to apologize, there is no way for, for locals, for people to, uh, to move on. And I think at least in Germany we do talk about it, the government started talking about it, but also not really immediately, it took some time. 
And I think that is probably part of the process. Everything needs their time. And I hope for Guatemala and for all these communities here that uh, the peace talks and the reconciliations uh, between the indigenous populations, the Latinos, the governments, that this will uh, start taking place sometime soon. The slaughtering was of primarily indigenous people? Yes. Wow. Are your neighbors primarily indigenous? Because I know you live like in a jungle <laughs> in the forest. I do live in Santiago Atitlan, which is probably the biggest alive indigenous community in Central America. So I lived and worked in the Tsutuhil Maya communities for the last two years. And uh, I have uh, met a lot of people who told me their stories. And for me, it's really hard to listen to them, I have to admit, because it breaks my heart to, uh, to hear the uh, disappearance of fathers, the hanging people in the, in the forest, uh, raping women, and uh, sexual and domestic violence is still an ongoing issue in, uh, uh, in the communities. And I have not met a single woman in, uh, in Santiago Atitlan with whom I had, like, let's say, a, a deeper conversation who didn't tell me about sexual, physical, or mental violence uh, within their family. So I think that's also part of the consequences of the genocide that happened here. And uh, they call it uh, the internal, uh, what is it called in, uh, uh, in English? El conflicto armado interno, the internal armed conflict. That's what, uh, what it's officially called. But it's What's still going on, you mean? No, uh, what happened. That's what, oh, yeah. okay. It sounds not so bad as uh, a genocide or a massacre or killing ind indigenous people. But maybe that's what's kept me from hearing about it because I consider myself a pretty well-read guy. Like I'm familiar with, with Noriega and what happened in Nicaragua and so like Panama and Nicaragua. I've been to Costa Rica many times. I don't know why I haven't heard about the Guatemalan aspect of the recent political problems that they've had. It's just, it missed me, so I'm glad you're educating me. That's not the education I was expecting today, but thank you. Yeah. And I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes for those who are interested in reading about it. How, how far did you live from Berlin, roughly? I would say uh, with the cars that we had at the time, <laughs> it was probably about three hours. <laughs> uh, with the cars and the streets that we have nowadays, uh, probably one and a half. Well, these luxurious communist blocks that you talked about where they had a bathroom rather than an outhouse how would you get there would it be a political connection or something i really have no idea i i don't know yeah. i think that the people who really had money they had their own little houses in the suburbs i think the communist blocks there were for let's say middle class east germans i would consider my family not middle class more like poor poor yeah. poor that yeah that's i think that's what it was how many people were in that unit, in that flat with you? So it was my grandparents, my aunt, my, my mother to a certain extent, uh, so we were five. Five? Mm-hmm. And so did you share a room or did you have your own room? No, I had a shared room with my aunt mm. and my grandparents had a sleeping room and then we had uh, like the kitchen and the so-called living room. That's mm. it. Could you ever consider going on a vacation or leaving East Germany, or was that not a possibility? That was not a possibility, especially given the fact that my grandfather was uh, crossing the borders. We would not never have gotten a visa. Mm -hmm. So we went to a uh, vacation in, uh, to the Baltic Sea. 
sometimes by bicycle that took quite some time yeah. <laughs> to get there <laughs> but I do have to say I have really good memories from that time we had like a garden uh, to grow vegetables and my grandparents were really loving and very kind uh, trying to yield a little bit what's happening on the outside but yeah you can't really dismiss the disappearing of people but I'll say that I developed some fortitude from what I experienced as a kid, which is nothing, I mean, doesn't compare to what you experienced, but that does that give you some confidence to know that you can survive just about anything? Do you feel any of that? I think I am a survivor. I would yeah. consider myself as a survivor, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that uh, this part of uh, my history is uh, absolutely uh, respons partially responsible for being a survivor. Yeah, I would what say so. What about human life? Do you feel like you value it more than the average person? I don't know. You don't know? I don't know. All right, let me ask you this question. If a dog that you loved were drowning and a stranger from Panama were drowning in Lake Atalan at the same time, which would you save? Oh, that's a really interesting question. I probably would go for the human. The human. Yeah, I would go for the human first. Yeah, yeah. me too. But I can't believe how many people say, well, I love the dog, so I would save the dog. I find that hard to believe, but that's a very common answer. So there's a big gap from what I know about you from that time until you were, say, what'd you say, second grade until you left at age 26 to get your PhD in Switzerland. Uh-huh. Did you realize that the wall came down and that that was going to change things for you, like change the trajectory of your life to where you could do what you wanted to do with your life? Absolutely. That was a life-changing experience. Uh, the, the night when the wall came down, we've been at the border and uh, I had no idea what's happening because I was uh, like seven years old. But I could feel there is something really big happening right now. There were people hugging, there were people just crying. And there was, even when I talk now, I get goosebumps. And I also recall that uh, the day after, or maybe a couple of days after the wall came down, we went to uh, West Berlin and I went to a supermarket and it was just incredible. I was standing in front of this chocolate section and I was like, oh my gosh, why do they have so much food? We mm. didn't have food. Sometimes I, I was queuing for bread uh, as a child. That was my, my, my job as a child sometimes to get to the bakery and get bread. That's and not barbecuing Texans, that's getting in line. Oh yeah, it's barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, getting in line. And when it was my turn, sometimes there was just no bread. So the, the stores and the GDR sometimes were just empty because there was no supply. And, and then seeing the abundance and maybe even overabundance of things in West Berlin was really like a, and also the colors. There was just so much. All of a sudden, there was so much happening. And it took some, some time to get, uh, to get used to that. And there was a lot of change really fast after the reunion because Germany put a lot of money into infrastructure in uh, East Berlin. So we got like uh, better housing, better uh, streets, uh, electricity, central heating, and so on and so on. Uh, there was a lot of construction happening throughout the 80s, 90s. Uh, we got a telephone line at some point that was uh, unthinkable of when we lived in East Germany. And so, yeah, it was, uh, it was something where I was like, yeah, that's going to change a lot of things. 
And my grandparents always told me, it's like, Jess, you are going to have a lot of opportunities in your life just because this happens now. Wow. They told you that as a second grader. Yeah. Had you ever been to, had you ever been near the border prior to that? Yes, we have. We so have. you had seen the dogs and the mm -hmm. barbed wire mm -hmm. and, wow. Never saw anybody try to cross. You just were told, hey, you never, yeah. nobody goes. Yeah, you don't get very close, but you can see it from far away. It's crazy. When you go to Berlin now, just on a tour bus, the guy's talking in your ear. Of course, you can choose English to listen to, and they'll say, okay, this is the border wall, and you've just crossed what used to be the border between East and West Germany, and now it's nothing. I mean, it's, they still have pieces of the wall up around the city, but it's demolished and it's such a part of history. I wish more people had an appreciation for it because the farther we get from it, it seems like the less you'll find a 20-something who knows about this stuff. And I'm always encouraging people like, go to Prague now because I'm afraid things are gonna become more and more westernized, but I like the idea of the older people resenting me when I go there or People, I find, don't make eye contact there, and it probably has a lot to do with the history of, of being conquered and whatever. But even the communist aspect of it is still, like if you go to Romania, you're getting on a train that was there during communism, and it's rickety and rusted, and it, like you said about cars, it takes you twice as long to get to the Black Sea as it would in a regular train, in a modern train. You still see the five-story gray block housing, which is a remnant of the communist era. Mm -hmm. And I've stayed in some of them as Airbnbs, and of course they've remodeled them, but you can still get a sense of, wow, everybody had one like this, and there's only one bedroom, and <laughs> it's crazy. We call it the East uh, Block Romanticism. Huh? <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> yeah, the, all these uh, these new Airbnbs that have like the touch of the East Block mm -hmm. with the uh, typical how do you call it uh, the wallpaper and uh, mm -hmm. everything that is kind of in orange and gray, the kitchen utensils, uh, it's all the same. And it's, it's kind of interesting. It is. It is interesting. You could probably charge more for that. That is interesting. <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of that, but yeah, it'd be tough to talk my wife into staying in something like that. I mean, it's hard to talk a woman in America to staying in an apartment that's more than like 15 years old, which is one of the things that I didn't realize buying rental properties is the caliber of tenant tends to go down the older the house gets. So when a house is only five years old, you have a much higher caliber of prospective tenant than when the house is 17, 18 years old because Americans tend to be materialistic and they don't want appliances that are out of date, let's say. So as a landlord, it's incumbent on you to make sure your properties are upgraded every 10 to 15 years. So you have to save money for that, keep some reserves for that. Fill in that gap for me from 12 to 26, if you don't mind. Well, when I attended school, I was a very intimate child. I was not talking much. I just studied at some point mechanical engineering because I uh, thought that uh, engineering solutions and innovating uh, renewable energies might be the passion to uh, find my peace with. But then I found myself in uh, 
studying in a very male-dominated area. And at the time, it was still not uh, not the best environment for a woman to, to, to be in. So I think uh, based on that, I just changed my topic to study environmental science at some point. And this is where I really started flourishing. Mm. I, I just realized uh, that uh, nature is so beautiful, the planet is so beautiful, and it's totally worth it to, to preserve it. So I think that's... Uh, where my passion started to, to grow on environmental and climate issues. And is that because you then had access to the rest of the world through uh, TV or visiting or...? No, I think it was mainly... I was studying in Freiburg, which is one of those uh, very... It's a very old university, and it's in the middle of a forest. Uh, there is a lot of uh, geology around. There's a lot of mining. And uh, we had a lot of professors who were just very passionate about the environment. And I think that was just, they just imposed that on us students. And mm. I'm really grateful for that. The way that they were talking about different ecosystems and uh, how everything is kind of interconnected and uh, how we as humans are starting to destruct and damage these ecosystems. When you think about creating a family or having friends who are uh, building families, all of a sudden there was this like, oh, if we're destroying it now, what's going to happen for these children? And so in, in Germany, there was a big climate and environmental movement in the 90s, I would say. And uh, this uh, led me to make a decision very early on when I was like 18 or 19 that I don't want to have children because uh, I don't think that uh, it's fair to bring children into a world that is so devastating. Um, wow. <laughs> because of what you'd been through or because of the environment? Because of the environment. Interesting. Because we know from a scientific point of view that since the 80s, that uh, greenhouse gas emissions are responsible for global warming. We know that the Industrial Revolution is responsible for increasing greenhouse gas emissions. We can uh, name it, we can say fossil fuels are responsible for increasing uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And so the consequences of uh, global warming are just uh, not very favorable for humans and wow. uh, for animals too i mean basically for all kinds of beings the way that we are targeting at the moment three to four maybe five to six uh, degrees celsius warming uh, this is a world i don't even want to live in because when you look at the sea level rises the increased uh, patterns of or the increased uh, and uh, more intense disastrous climate events like droughts floodings and we can see it, we can feel it right now. It's here, it's there. And it's going to be way more intense and way more frequent in the future. So when I was like in my, yeah, in like 1920, I thought this is not a good path. And so I basically decided to dedicate my life to increase awareness. And uh, I started to work more on uh, climate related uh, topics. Any doubts whatsoever that you could have, I want to say overplayed your hand, but that were very impressionable at that age. Is it possible that, like Steve Coonan's book comes to mind. What is the name of his book? It's called Unsettled? And it gives you a peek into, for example, the consensus is what you're saying, but consensus doesn't mean all. So would you be curious to know 
what those few scientists say who believe that some of this is overplayed for a reason. So like there's an H.L. Mencken quote that says, the purpose of practical politics is to keep people alarmed by mostly imaginary hobgoblins so that they're clamoring to be led to safety. So is it possible that you've made life decisions based on being susceptible to the influence of professors who also may have been hoodwinked, not to say hoodwinked, because we do know that humans are causing the climate to change. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. But what if it's not as bad as they're telling us? Let's assume hypothetically this would be the case. Would you like to risk it uh, to not uh, act right now and just keep playing and saying, well, maybe it's not as severe as we may think it is? I wouldn't go that route, to be honest, because there are climate change deniers. There is scientific papers published uh, from climate change deniers who think that uh, the consequences uh, of greenhouse gas emissions are not as severe as, let's say, most of the climate scientists agree on. But yeah, I don't think that this is a very scientific assessment because we do have plenty of data. Okay. We have a ton of data. There are so many peer-reviewed articles on the human-induced climate change and how we, by burning fossil fuels, are increasing greenhouse gas emissions. That's pure physics. So with the burning fossil fuels, we are increasing CO2, suit particles uh, into the atmosphere that are accelerating global warming because of the greenhouse gas effect. That's physics. We, uh, I think we cannot disagree on uh, basic physics. And so the consequences of burning fossil fuels is quite simple. When the atmosphere heats, there are certain tipping points that we will reach soon, most likely. We probably already uh, accelerated some of the tipping points. That means that the poles are going to uh, melt. We know that uh, the sea level will rise. We know that if the oceans are warming, then uh, there is less capacity for CO2 to be absorbed because oceans and forests are our biggest uh, CO2 sequesters. That means that uh, they do photosynthesis and they absorb the CO2 from the atmosphere to produce their biomass. So we call them carbon sinks. These carbon sinks are very essential to keep the carbon balance and uh, we are basically not only burning fossil fuels by emitting greenhouse gases, we are also reducing the carbon sinks by deforestation. And the warmer the climate, the warmer the oceans, the lesser the capacity for the oceans to actually absorb the CO2. So it's like a lose-lose situation. And I think that's for me is enough to know that uh, even if the consequences are not as severe as uh, some people may claim, I think it is uh, absolutely worth it to act now instead of saying sorry later. <laughs> I think that's not, uh, not the way to go. And also, when you look at what happened in the last uh, decades, we can see really severe weather changes. We have uh, more droughts, more floodings. 
there are more hurricanes, uh, there are more intense hurricanes, there is uh, a change in uh, uh, wind systems, there is a change in the thermoline circulation in the oceans. So there are so much evidence where we can put data on it and we can say, well, that's a really uncommon pattern and uh, this correlates uh, with the Industrial Revolution. But so. you don't have confirmation bias. You would be willing to read something by someone who could provide charts and data that would signal that it's not as big a problem as we've been led to believe? Yeah, I had a lot of discussions with climate change deniers in my life. and uh, Not deniers. I'm talking about, so Joe Rogan, who's the biggest podcaster in the world, he had Steve Coonan on who wrote the book Unsettled, and then the next person he had on was a person who fears that by 2100 we're going to experience an increase of three degrees Celsius in global temperatures or four. You're showing me a four and a five. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if he's expecting that high, but it's fascinating to listen to because one of the things that Joe Rogan says is, I've never been exposed to this. And one of the things you realize about politics and economics and science is that we're not exposed to a lot. And after I listened to that episode with Steve Coonan, I was taken aback. It's something that I would not expect someone who is anti-conservative or uber-leftist to read because they mostly suffer from confirmation bias and the emotions get too riled up to even consider an alternative thought, much less read a book. I mean, it's one thing to have a debate, but to read a book. So there's a guy named Dr. Peter Atia who told Joe Rogan, hey, read this book and let me know what you think. And he read the book and he said, oh my God, I've got to get this guy on the podcast. And so that guy came equipped with charts that they could put up. So if he would say something, he would say, put up uh, file 11 from when the Nile River, they measured the depth of the Nile River over a course of 2,000 years. And then Joe Rogan would say, so are you saying that we're not measuring a long enough time? And then the guy would say, well, well, yeah, I mean, we think in terms of 100 years, which might be a lifetime, but you really need to think in longer terms because from 1980 to 2010 this happened, but, but, but from 2010 to, to 2020 this happened and it returned to normal. And in 1955 there was a major drought and then in the 70s there was a global freeze scare and we have very short memories. And there, there are things like organizations like Covering Climate Now, which consists of the BBC, which I'm sure you've, I know you're familiar with, NPR, they signed an agreement that they wouldn't cover anything that counters the narrative as laid out by the UNIPCC or the U.S. National Academies of Science. And of course I'm talking over my head, but Chuck Schumer, who is a U.S. senator and about 12 other senators, they also said that no government money would be spent to counter the narrative. And the narrative being that this is an act now sort of situation and nobody seems to, which surprises me as a business person, nobody seems to bring up the business argument, which is some people, and I'm talking again about uber, uber leftists, 
they value equality above even truth. Like it's their highest, if they had a hierarchy of values, it's equality at the top. And so what better way to create equality in the world than to promote a worldwide emergency, which there's a topic you don't want to talk about, so I'm going to avoid it, but it created a lot of equality. Any thoughts on what I'm telling you? I mean, does that, I'm sure you've not heard that it's possible that this is a Trojan horse for redistribution of wealth, which wasn't a rebuttal to, I think you had four questions on your website. None of them dealt with the economic aspect. And whenever I talk to someone who is, so the AOC types believe that we don't act now, then in 12 years, we're all gonna be dead, basically. So the, the climate policy, of course, is always tied to an energy policy, which they say that social justice can't be achieved without economic justice. Well, what is that? Well, that's material equality. And if you hold material equality as a noble goal, well, good on you, but I happen to not be one of those people because I've traveled the world and I've seen people who are just as happy living in Mexico, lower middle class, as those who are on antidepressants in America living in three-story homes. Well, I think it's an, it's an interesting train of thought because uh, if you That you haven't heard before, would you? I do have. You've heard that? Yeah. Oh, see, that surprises me. I think I have been very open when it came to contra-arguments uh, and also to discuss the severity of the consequences of global warming. However, when you want to talk about uh, the economic aspect of it, I mean, you always have to ask yourself, where is the benefit? And the benefit is in the fossil fuel companies, right? Fossil fuel companies are making... So the benefit is, is fossil fuel companies? I do believe if uh, we follow the money, and then we can see that uh, the money goes into fossil fuel companies. So there is a huge uh, lobbying from uh, a small industry that has a huge impact on people and the planet. And if we look at the sustainability of these industries, uh, sustainability is based on three pillars of uh, impact, social impact, environmental impact, and the financial impact, then we can say that um, the environmental impact of fossil fuel companies is they're wrecking our climate. We know that uh, global warming is a problem for the environment because of the collapsing of ecosystems. We can uh, look at the social impact of fossil fuel companies by looking at who is going to extract, process, and transport fossil fuels. There is a lot of uh, exploitation along the lines. There is a lot of destruction along the lines that uh, that is uh, even resulting in uh, more inequality because the extraction, processing, and transportation of fossil fuels also leads to communities who are all of a sudden being robbed by their ecosystem, by their natural resources, by their forests, by their water. Huge problem uh, with the fossil fuel industries because uh, during the extraction process, uh, they are destroying groundwaters, uh, they're uh, building pipelines like the uh, Dakota Access, uh, Keystone uh, XL pipelines uh, that are going through indigenous land and destroying their water sources among the uh, taking away their land. And the financial impact. 
because we have built a society uh, that is uh, based on fossil fuels. Basically, everything that we have is based on fossil fuels. Our electricity is based on fossil fuels. Our computers, all the utilities that we are using are made from plastic, so that's all fossil fuel based. We know it's a limited resource because the planet Earth is a, a finite planet, so all the resources are limited. And we are having like a single source dependence on, uh, uh, on fossil fuels, particularly oil, gas, and coal, though we are facing out coal in some of the countries. But I think there is this carbon bubble that might burst at some point. So we are investing into an industry that uh, clearly is damaging the environment, that clearly is based on exploitation, and that is clearly at some point going to collapse because of the lack of the resources that will just not be available. And we know it also right now, we can see it, that the uh, exploration and the extraction of fossil fuels, the cost structures, is increasing every single year. So I think independent of the consequences of emitting greenhouse gas emissions, and uh, independent of uh, if the consequences are severe or not, we have to change the system under any circumstances because the resources uh, is going to be limited. So yeah. we are running out of fossil fuels at some point in the future, and all our infrastructure is basically depending on this liquid, on the black gold. Yeah. And so I don't understand how we can still live in a system where a lobby from oil, gas, and coal can be so powerful that they're ruling our system and that it's almost impossible to have a systematic change towards a future that is much brighter, that is much nicer to the environment, and that is also much nicer to the people because we have this chance to reinvent systems, we have the chance to reinvent our future, and if even though I don't want to have children, but when I think of all the children of my friends and uh, family, I'm like, why don't we just do it for them? Because at the moment, we are inheriting them a planet that is just damaged mm. and that is degradating. So you can look at the water sources. Most of the water sources are polluted. Uh, you can look at the soils. There is almost no nutrients left in the soils. We can look at the forests. They are so sick. We are deforesting the rainforest. They're so important for producing clean air, for filtering our air. It's every single ecosystem is so important for the uh, survival of the human species. And if we don't uh, preserve them, I think we are going to be part of the sixth mass extinction. And, uh, and I think that, for me, is a good reason <laughs> to just uh, keep going and uh, changing a system towards something that is more sustainable, more kind to people, and more kind to, to the planet. I think that's where I'm standing, and I do believe that the consequences of climate change are actually much more severe than uh, we see and hear and read in the news, because we have seen in the last decades that even though we have predicted uh, changing climate patterns, we have not predicted uh, it coming so fast. It was always like, oh, yeah, it's going to happen at some point in the future. And now we're looking, and it's here. I mean, the last hurricane season here in, uh, in Central America, was uh, it started earlier. There were way more uh, hurricanes, and they were way uh, more intense. 
And so what's happening with all these changing patterns is we have to adapt to new systems. We have to adapt to new climates and we have to adapt to things that have that just didn't exist before. And, uh, and that leaves people without homes, that leaves people without food, that leaves people without a hope for a future. And I think that is something that, uh, that I, don't, uh, I don't want to participate in that. Yeah, I think it's, it's better to act now than uh, say sorry later. I don't like hashtag activists. Do you know what a hashtag activist is? No. <laughs> You're about as far from a hashtag activist as there is which means you're someone who gets shit done. You put your money in your ass where your mouth is, right? You're, you're in Guatemala, for Christ's sake. I'm just trying to be authentic with myself. Well, and you're as authentic as they come, so <laughs> let me commend you for that. But I've met a lot of people, and... They're the hashtag activist types. I mean, these types are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They change their profile picture on Facebook to be a rainbow. They put a black square on Instagram. But, and what it leads to, sadly, is like half of young people believe that they're good for their opinions. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm a good person because I believe this. And what I'm commending you for is that you're the opposite of that. You probably have put a rainbow somewhere on your social media, but you walk the talk, right? I hope so, yeah. Yes, you do. I know you do. I looked at your social media, and talking to you, it's like, wow, this is the most, you're one of the most authentic, intelligent, well-spoken people that I've ever met. I wish that we could populate the earth with more of you, and so it bothers me that I think that... If you had been exposed to some of the reading that I had been, so let me give you a little bit of my background. In my 20s, I naively thought that, for whatever reason, the salt and pepper haired businessman always not intimidated me, but I knew that's who my competition was. And this is how I thought of it. If I'm 24 years old and I graduated from college at 22, and he's 42 years old, he has 20 years experience. I have two, so he has 10 times as much experience as me. And so I read everything I could get my hands on. And I finished in the, almost the fourth quarter of my high school graduating class. But when I was on a show called Bigger Pockets, the first thing the host said to me was, my producer tells me you're a genius, and I thought, how does a guy go from bottom of the third quarter of his high school graduating class to being called a genius in front of a quarter million people? And the answer is, well, I read everything I could get my hands on. I don't think you need to show up at an Ivy League school in order to educate yourself. I came into my 20s at a time when most of this stuff became available for free. If there was an argument that sounded like it got me riled up emotionally, like, ooh, I want to save the world, well, then I was like, what's the other side? And so I subscribed to both the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. I had no business doing that. I didn't have the money to be subscribing to two newspapers. But the New York Times op-ed 
and the Wall Street Journal op-ed were opposed politically. And those are like the top papers in America. So mm -hmm. I knew I would get both sides of the argument. One of them wrote a book called The World is Flat. And I was able to <laughs> read a book like that and find myself highlighting and making notes disagreeing with a 42 salt and pepper haired guy just because I had read so much and the, the compounding effect of reading. And I had this quote that I've lived by, which is, the true rewards in life are on the top shelf. And the way that you get there is by standing on the books you read. And so I wanted the true rewards, which I'm living now, by the way. This is a reward <laughs> like you wouldn't believe. So I would hang out with my 27, 28-year-old friends who were in grad school or law school or doing their residency to be doctors. And in so many different ways, I felt smarter than them. And the reason... I thought was because, well, I'm reading all these different things, whereas they have to focus on this one topic. So I feel like if I talk to a climate scientist, it's like, oh, I wonder if they've read both sides. I'd like to see what they think about the Trojan horse argument for equality or the fact that there truly are people who value equality above truth. That is a huge statement. It's saying that the means justify the ends. Like if I have to lie in order to get rid of Trump, then I would do that, of course, right? Because mm -hmm. to a lot of people in America, Trump was literally Hitler. I mean, that's what they called him, literally Hitler. So who wouldn't have lied in the 1930s to get rid of Hitler? That would say something about you, right? So. People want to be on the right side of history, and, and I can't, it's hard for me to fathom that somebody like you, well, I'm going to throw myself in the mix too. I'm probably only going to have one child, possibly two. My best friends are having no more than one or two children. It's like the people who should be having kids are not, and the people who shouldn't be having kids are. Have you ever seen the movie Idiocracy or heard of it? No, I have not. The way it starts is there's a woman in a trailer, she's got three teeth. And she's on the phone with her doctor. She's holding a baby. They got five of them crying on the floor. And she calls out to her husband. She's like, Joe, Bob, we're pregnant again. And, of course, the joke is, oh, God, idiocracy. We're going to be a bunch of idiots, you know, and that's what America's going to become or whatever. But they did use white people. They couldn't have used another race. So that's – we've got that going for us, I guess, because I did notice – in one of our email exchanges, you had said that white people were basically ruining the world. <laughs> I know you could, you could probably explain it better, but I, I probably pulled the quote precisely. Do you want me to pull it exactly as you said Yeah, it? I'm pretty sure I said something along the line. So I'll quote you in saying, this is mainly about the cognitive dissonance that the white people from the global north have when it comes to being responsible for the injustice in the world. The wealth of the North is built on the poverty, oppression, and exploitation of people and natural resources in the global South. Explain yourself, please. <laughs> oh, I like that, uh, that argument a lot. Because I do believe that people in the U.S. and in Europe, let's call them the Western or the Global North, huh? they developed a system, uh, a capitalistic system, that is uh, based on uh, economic growth, right? 
So the more money, the better, the more, the better, the more I consume, the better. And uh, without thinking, what does that mean in a worldwide perspective? Because let's assume if we want to have a world of uh, equality and we want to have everyone to have the same access to the same resources, And given the fact that our planet Earth is uh, a finite planet with finite resources, we could not provide everybody with the lifestyle of an average American. If I recall right, the average American has a CO2 footprint of 15 or 16 tons per, per year, per capita. So that's quite a high number. Uh, and that is based on consumption, 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 and transportation and the overall lifestyle. And I think the typical German lifestyle costs about five to six tons of uh, CO2 per year, so it's a little bit better, but it's still huge. And so we don't have the resources in order to uh, provide everyone with the same lifestyle. And I think that is part of, uh, of the problem. But you think that's a noble goal to, if we were to achieve, which is of course impossible, it's like, wishing there was a pot of gold under every rainbow that shows up at everybody's house. If we were to achieve material equality, that is a noble goal in your mind. Well, I think giving every person on the world the access to enough food, water, and shelter, that would be a good goal to start with. Okay. Yeah, Since we cannot uh, provide that to everyone, and that goes along the line also with uh, we are very overpopulated as a planet, and as long as we cannot provide basic needs to everyone, I think we cannot justify an excessive lifestyle of, uh, of the West. And uh, where does the system come from? I mean, when you look at the, at the world map and you look at the natural resource distribution, you will see that a lot of the natural resources that we have, they are sitting in the global south. And who's consuming it is the global north. How do we extract, process, and uh, transport these materials is based on exploitation. Look at all the minings here in Guatemala, everywhere else in the world. People don't get a fair salary. They have really poor working conditions. Uh, and they are extracting the minerals that are needed in order to have this microphone here. So. These people who are extracting, working on uh, extracting the, the, the minerals and all the other resources that we are consuming as white people, they are not getting their life financed. They cannot provide their families with the basic needs of uh, water, food, electricity, uh, and shelter. And I think that is a big injustice that I see and I don't want to contribute to. And I think that's the reason why at some point uh, I just left, uh, I left Europe because I was teaching at the university and I saw my students coming into my class. We were talking about climate change, we were talking about sustainability, we were talking about the environment. And every single time there was a student coming in with a single-use water bottle. And I'm like, man, you didn't understand the problem. And I, ha I, I was asking them to leave the classroom. They a single-use straw, too. Oh, probably they did have a single-use straw. They wanted to stick it in their eyes. Oh, man, yeah. If not elsewhere. <laughs> well, I do believe we as adults 
we don't need straws at all. We don't even have to think about bamboo straws, metal straws, or any kind of noodle straw that uh, is now out there as a sustainable alternative to a yeah, plastic why straw. Why do we have straws? I don't know. I think that maybe people with a certain disability who can't, uh, who really need something, a helping device uh, to drink. Okay, give them a, a metal straw. But uh, drinking a smoothie in uh, one of those hipster cafes, yeah. I think nobody needs to need a straw. We can drink out of a glass. I think we are adults. So it makes a man look like a fruitcake. I mean, if I made this motion here with my mouth, <laughs> right? That's almost like making a duck face for an Instagram <laughs> selfie. I don't need to be it drinking is. out of a straw. And I it think is. you've just convinced me not to ever drink out of a straw again. Good. So good for you. Good. Have we accomplished something? I, we did, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> we did. Awesome. Okay, so I want to hit on a few things. So any idea how many people or what percentage of the world has been lifted out of poverty in my lifetime? I don't know. Any idea? I know that in Guatemala uh, there is a moment. No, globally. Globally? I don't Take know. Take a guess. I guess it's probably almost half of the population. It's more like 80%. 80%. Yeah, wow. it's, it's like billions with a B. Mm -hmm. D does that have any uh, impact on you at all or no? Do you think that with all the climate change action that we take to mitigate, let's say, three, four, five degrees Celsius, that those people will be grateful to us? Uh, are we grateful for those who came before us? We are not, I think. No? We are you think not. they will? You think people are getting more grateful, though? No, no. And I think that's not, uh, that's not the purpose of uh, being on this earth, to be grateful for other generations. I think if we look at the world as uh, humans, then we should just try to provide everyone with the basic needs. And as long as there is a mother with a child bagging food on the street, we have failed. That's mm. how I see it. And as long as we are closing our eyes for the social injustice in the world, we have failed. I don't know how I can personally make a contribution to, to this world, but well, I think... Well, you're doing it. Yeah, I would say, to my, in, my, in my circumstances. Well, we haven't even uh, talked about all that you've accomplished, <laughs> and it's amazing what you've been able to accomplish. Thank you. Yeah, and I want you to brag about <laughs> some of the things that you've accomplished, but first, I want to hit on a few things you just said so that we don't get off topic too much. You talked about the finite resources. So one of my concerns has always been that those climate activist types rarely have the economic education that would be required to make, I don't want to say an educated opinion because that's not fair, but <laughs> if it weren't true, well, let me give you this example. Barack Obama, everybody knows who that is, so I can talk about him. When he was running for office, he talked about a pie, our economy being a pie, and he would say, I want some pie, he wants some pie, she wants some pie. I would imagine that you think of the economy the same way, right? There's no reason we shouldn't all have the same amount of pie. I do see the economy as a donut. <laughs> Instead of a pie? Instead of a pie, because uh, you have like uh, the outer rim of the donut that uh, shows us our planetary boundaries. 
let's say resources, biodiversity, and so on and so forth. And then the inner, uh, the inner ring is uh, the social foundation on which we build our economic system. So that means that we have to provide everyone with basic needs, education, uh, access to electricity, access to food, water, shelter, gender equality. Let's put that into, into, one, uh, uh, into one big package. And so the economy in the donut is limited by, yeah, by the planetary boundaries and by the social foundation. And you don't want to overshoot over the planetary boundaries and you don't want to dismiss the social foundation because that's where sustainability really comes from, mm. is we have to build a society where everybody gets their needs met, where we respect the planetary boundaries in terms of pollution, in terms of the limitation of resources, uh, and so on and so forth. And also we want to keep biodiversity. I think we are, at the moment, we are losing so many species on a daily basis, and we're not even aware of it. It's like when you think of uh, like in the 80s, 90s, and you were driving a car in summertime, there was hundreds of flies on your windshield. Nowadays, you drive and there's almost no insect. That's a huge difference. And since this change happens so slowly, or very slowly, gradually, we maybe don't even think that this is a big deal, but just thinking about it. That's kind of like the, the poverty thing I talked about, like lifting... 80% of the world's population out of poverty, it should be front page news every day because it's the biggest news of our lifetimes, but we don't. It's not going to get clicks. Yeah, so I think that's a pity. We don't, we are closing our eyes for the obvious. Can the pie grow or no? The economic pie. The economic pie, well. Because that's what he was talking about. I know, I know. Well, it can only grow within the boundaries, within the planetary boundaries. Mm. So we can only use as much soil as there is. And mm. when you look at the soil formation, it takes hundreds of years to produce or to create one centimeter of new soil. But the rate of degradation of the soil is really high at the moment. Here in Guatemala, the, the soil quality is decreasing every single year because of monoculture, because of over-fertilization, bad uh, agricultural practices, uh, the uh, overuse of pesticides, insecticides, and so on and so forth. And then on top of it, there is a lot of cash crops here in Guatemala that's going to be exported. That means we are exporting nutrients from the soils here. And that leaves people, indigenous communities, left with infertile soil, which means that they have to fertilize even more. We are not regenerating the, the soil quality. And once the soil is lost, how do we grow food? I mean, without soil, no food. No food, no humans. I think we have to look at the holistic system. And, and I think that is where I think that our economic system has its limits. We have to look at the resources that we have available. How are we using them today? And what are the consequences? And I think that's, that's at least that's how I see the world and how I try to to look also at my personal consumption. It's like, I'm trying to consume as little as possible. I'm trying to be a minimalist. I uh, think twice, do I really need that? And if I buy something, I'm trying to go for the high quality product where I know it's going to last me as long as possible. But also when you look at the industries at the moment, they're producing 
products that are being trashed within a short amount of time so that they can resell it to you again and again and again. Yeah. It doesn't make sense to have, uh, let's say, a blender that uh, has a metal part and a plastic part together. The blenders, let's say, in the 80s, 70s, they were really robust, huh? with all metal parts. That makes so much sense. It's a product that you have for the lifetime. Now the blenders you use for a couple of months and then they're broken because plastic and metal, they, yeah. they don't work really well together. Yeah. So it's the industry who is producing stuff based on capitalistic models. So because they want their own profits. And so I think there is something fundamentally wrong here. We don't produce things that last and we're producing everything that is uh, just for short-term use, like the straws, huh? Like iPhones, the I functional obsolescence of iPhones. <laughs> I would still be using an iPhone 5S if I wasn't forced to upgrade after, I mean, I held on as long as I could. I didn't want to upgrade. I was afraid of my phone slowing down. And I think one night I woke up after turning my phone off, which I think you're supposed to do, but I don't, ever do and I did it this one time and what do you know my phone was upgraded overnight it slowed to the point where I couldn't use it anymore so I had to buy a new iPhone and I've been doing it ever since and it happens with all the products huh it's all the products yeah those big box TVs I don't know if you guys had them in Germany like mm -hmm. maybe your first TV ever was on wooden blocks almost it was like a big block of wood with a tv inside did you have one of those we didn't have a, a tv but i i know what you're talking about yes <laughs> those would last 30 years now a tv with a fancy flat concave shape to it you got to get a new one after three years i it's don't ridiculous. even have a tv i don't either now that i think about it but you're probably reading books instead which is why you're so smart i do read books on uh, electronically Nowadays, yeah, I I stopped reading. I, well, I live in Guatemala, so it's really hard to get books anyways yeah. uh, in paper form. I do love paper books, but it's much better for the environment to not print it. So there was an argument between Hillary and Obama in the primary, which is what you have to win in order to get to the general election to run against the other party. And he was asked, Mr. Obama or Senator Obama, since it just so happens that when we lower the capital gains tax, more money comes into the treasury, presumably for the programs that he wanted to implement to help the kids or whoever, why would you not then be in favor of lowering the capital gains tax? He wanted to raise the capital gains tax, which means take more money from wealthier people. And he said, well, I think it's a matter of fairness. And to me, that makes no sense whatsoever. No, I, I, I do agree. I think we should you tax- agree with me? I, sh I think we should tax the wealthy more than uh, the poor. That would be the, the, the just way to go forward. Okay. Because what is the base of their wealth is the exploitation of the poor anyways. So okay. they should pay way more taxes. Do you know what a non sequitur is? No. Okay, that's an argument that doesn't follow logically from one that was just made. Yeah. So I said, Mr. Obama or Senator <gasps> Obama, it's been proven that when we lower the capital gains tax, that more money comes into the treasury. So I, ideally, how? you could use that money. How? Yeah. Because when you lower taxes, 
it incentivizes them to invest more or oh, hire employees or whatever when you can keep your own money but you could also have like a scaffolding kind of tax system no scaffolding like in the in a way that uh, if you have a certain certain income oh like a progressive a tax a progressive we tax we have that big time okay oh big time yeah i mean if i told you what percentage of taxes like yeah it's ridiculous i mean i think we have 50% pay no federal income tax and then maybe 10% pay 95%. I mean, it's something really, really crazy. You would never hear that. But this is the sort of thing that if you and I talked regularly, I'd be like, hey, this is a short article that I want you to read. And then you would send me something that would be a short article that you'd want me to read. And then we'd both learn and we'd come back together and we'd talk about it. I mean, mm -hmm. that's how you learn, I think. Rather than being dogmatic or rather than being, what's the word you used? It was, uh, did you use confirmation bias? Maybe. Yeah, it's a great word, right? It just means that you are only going to seek that which agrees with you rather mm -hmm. than, or easier said, something that's going to confirm your existing pre-existing biases. Well, I was going to say earlier that I thought it was natural for people to do this and quickly learned in my 30s that that's not how people are at all. Like, they don't want their views challenged at all, and I realized how many people's emotions overwhelm their intellect. So if they read something that would make them feel in a negative way, they would put it down. And I do have experience with this. So I was raised Catholic, and I read The End of Faith by Sam Harris. Have you ever heard of Sam Harris? No. Neurologist, author, meditator, podcaster, it's called Waking Up, if you're interested. He uses a lot of big words, he's a really smart guy. But what I found so interesting was when I talked about the economic pie, you brought up a donut, <laughs> which is so similar to a pie. But what I'm getting at is that if economic growth weren't possible, then we'd all be still living in caves. We'd, we'd be hitting sticks together for fun. Like, the pie can grow. And that's when I realized, like, oh my God, I'm smarter than Barack Obama economically. How can that be? He is crazy smart. And he's articulate, of course, and speaks so well. But just because he spent this many years studying congressional, what was he, like a constitutional law professor or something like that. Mm -hmm. Like, well, you've spent all this time studying this while I spent all this time studying economics. Maybe I'm smarter than you in this area. And to me, it was proven true by not just the fairness argument, but he also said, I want some pie, he wants some pie, she wants some pie. And it's like, that's not how it works. Like the pie, you can grow the pie. But only within the limits of the planet. No. No, no, I mean, innovation, like, like what we're doing now is, is incredible. Like, this could not have been done 25 years ago. This was invented by someone. I think that economic growth doesn't mean that there is no development. I think innovation and development is always possible, but within the framework 
of uh, natural resources and uh, ecosystem health. Because uh, let's think about, uh, well, fossil fuels is a good example. We only have a certain amount of fossil fuels to our disposal, right? Because it was built like 300 million years ago after the megafauna uh, was, uh, was flourishing, it was uh, drowned on the water, and it transformed under pressure and heat into fossil fuels. Huh? But see, I would argue there too that if I'm you, I would read those who predicted that we would run out of fossil fuels and then find the contrary argument, which is we not only haven't run out, we've we keep discovering more and more and more and more and more. Well, I uh, kind of disagree here. I think what, uh, like in the 90s, what we discovered is that the uh, extractions of fossil fuels uh, are going to be more and more difficult. We know like that- Like fracking. Like, yes. Well, then uh, we kind of started innov innovating. I put that in quotation marks, huh? Uh, <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, we learned to do it like sideways. I know, it's amazing. I know. There is a lot of, but it's basically we're trying to uh, suck out the, the last drop of uh, the fossil fuels from everywhere in the world instead of focusing on energy sources that are uh, easily available. Let's say the sun, it's there forever, uh, at least when we think about our time scales uh, of uh, hundred thousands of years. Uh, the sun is not going to cool down that fast. So we do have wind available in most of the places in the well, very global north. When the sun's out, yeah, I mean, we can use it then, yeah. So I think we should focus on these kind of resources because they are less polluting, they are less damaging, and they are, if we are now reinventing our economic system, we do have the chance to make it better. Wait, you're saying we're reinventing our economic system? Well, I hope for that. Oh. I really hope for Do that. Do you think that's what's going on right now? No. No. No, because I was uh, in 2014, we went to Paris to demonstrate in front of the Eiffel Tower. That was a grown demonstration, mm. 100,000 of people, because uh, that was the COP, the uh, climate conference in 2014, where the majority of the countries decided to sign an agreement to uh, decarbonize our economy. Mm. And that was, for me, a very bright moment, because I was really hoping that we are going to uh, work towards that goal that everybody was signing. We have it black on white. Most of the countries have signed this Paris Agreement that we are going to try to decarbonize our society, which means that we are facing out coal, we are facing out oil, and we are facing out petroleum. And then since 2014, basically nothing happened. There is only a very, very few countries that actually have determined goals, first of all, to have a goal. Okay, that's what we are trying to aim for. And then looking at the accomplishments, this is, this is such a sad story because there is no accomplishment, at least not in a significant way. And so, yeah, I'm very disillusioned by, uh, by the agreements that our governments are making. And that's why I think that uh, we need more people power we need more people's movement, and we have to initiate the change, the systemic change that is needed in order to make the planet more healthy. Well, that's what electing people is supposed to be about, right? <laughs> We're supposed to elect you to represent our desires. So if we want 
you as our representative to go and sign the Paris Climate Accords, we're electing you to do that. I think the reason you saw no change is because one, there's no, it's voluntary, there's no accountability, no consequences. Not everybody has the heart of gold you do. Why didn't we put uh, mechanisms in place? Let's uh, look at the voluntary carbon market. Huh? There is, uh, uh, that was one of the mechanisms that was uh, invented during, for the Paris Agreement, or for the, Par yeah, for the Paris Agreement. The carbon market, compliant or voluntary, is a mechanism so that uh, uh, companies are reducing their carbon emissions, and that emission that they cannot reduce yet, they can offset. That was the idea. But now what's happening, at least on the voluntary carbon market, is there is an oversupply of verified carbon units. So that means that a lot of projects are reducing carbon emissions, they're preventing carbon emissions, and they're getting credits for that. And then they sell them for like 2 to $5 on the carbon market. What is my incentive as a company everywhere in the world to actually reduce my carbon emissions if I can just offset it for 2 to $5. Where's the incentive? It's not there. And then it's voluntary for most of the companies. The compliant market works a little bit different, but on the voluntary and carbon market, I'm really frustrated to see this development. And now with the Ukraine war and uh, with the, the general geopolitical situation that we are in with the COVID and uh, all the disasters that are not uh, related to climate change, the prices on the, on the carbon market, the voluntary and carbon market is, is going down. So that's even incentivizing companies to greenwash because it's so much cheaper to offset your carbon footprint instead of reducing it. So how do we ever going to reach a decarbonized society if there is no mechanism in place to actually force companies, force industries, and force governments to implement action points? Mm. I think that's what I feel is lacking, and that's why I think we need more environmental and social movements where people go on the street and demand their justice and demand the change that is needed because we can see the consequences. This year's harvest was really down because there was really heavy rainfalls. People have a problem with this because all of a sudden there is less food on the table. And what's, what's the root cause? It's global warming. It's changing climate patterns. People don't really know when to put the seed in the ground. And I think that's a huge problem. And I don't, uh, don't know how to solve it, but raising awareness about the severity of the situation, I guess. Mm -hmm. And motivating people to actually use their voice uh, to demand change. And I think that's what we did when we founded uh, Fossil Free. Uh, in Switzerland, it was uh, we've been a bunch of people, let's say climate activists, and we were like, okay, it doesn't really help to go on the street and demonstrate. It's nice to have, you know, like a poster saying, oh, there is no planet B. That's very important for the media, but how can we drive real change? And so what we thought is, okay, who in Switzerland, which is one of the biggest financial markets uh, in the world. They are responsible for investing in infrastructure like Keystone XL pipeline. 
so where does the money come from? It comes from banks, pension funds, and insurance companies. Oh, all of a sudden, we were like, oh, wait a second. So they're using my money that I, I'm working in Switzerland, I'm paying my taxes, I'm paying into my pension fund, and they're gambling with the money that I am putting into my pension fund to create systems, pipelines, to pump oil from A to B that uh, is spilling, that is uh, damaging the environment, that is uh, destroying indigenous land. How can I be okay with this? Mm. And so uh, we started this, uh, these campaigns where people, so we had like pre, uh, predefined letters and uh, there was like a, a platform where you could uh, demand from your bank, your pension fund and your insurance company to stop investing in fossil fuels. And so we developed this kind of platform because we were like, okay, that's, that's maybe something where we can really drive change to take off fossil fuels of a portfolio uh, from pension funds. Because uh, if this carbon bubble is going to burst at some point, my pension fund is nothing, it's worth nothing. And Well, hopefully it's diversified more than just ExxonMobil and Chevron, yeah, but... They yes. should not invest in that under any circumstances, especially when you think about it, a health insurance company how can they invest in fossil fuel companies? That's a really weird, that's a, that's a counter argument because uh, it's damaging directly the health of people who are working in this industry. So how can a health insurance company feel okay with investing in uh, environmental and uh, social destruction? Mm. And it's the same with pension funds. How can we go and be okay with this? And most of the people don't know how the pension funds, uh, banks, and insurance companies are actually investing. And when you look at their portfolios, fossil fuel companies are taking a huge amount of their investment. And I think that's not okay. I think they've, if they've thought about it at all, they've decided that the benefits outweigh the costs. Short term, probably. Long term, absolutely not. You seem really concerned about 2100. I am concerned within, yes, uh, within the next couple of decades. We will go and see way more destruction. And way more environmental destruction will lead to geopolitical distress, will lead to more migration, will lead to more geopolitical problems which I don't want to see in the world. I don't want to see a world where uh, governments are fighting. Like, for example, here in Guatemala, there is this river that's called uh, uh, Montagua. It's full of trash. There, it's really, you can't even see the water anymore. It's full of trash. And the, the water ends in Honduras. So, basically, Guatemala is sending their trash to Honduras. This is causing problems between countries because our natural systems don't have country boundaries. If we destroy an ecosystem here, it will have effects everywhere else. Yeah. So there's no actual lines on the ground. There is no. There is no. <laughs> there is no, no. No boundaries. Or no, yeah, no. No country lines. So white people, why are they destroying the world? You think that they're stealing natural resources? from the south is that what you're saying well i think in the indirectly probably yes but the the way that uh, we as white people over consume that these resources are coming from the global south 
So yeah, I think that's a, that's a big problem. Sorry, I missed that. There was a little buddy, little guy that came in and interrupted. What? Say that again, please. I said that uh, uh, we as white people, we are over-consuming, especially in Europe and uh, in the U.S. Uh, and this overconsumption leads to an extraction of resources that are mainly coming from the global south. Mm. So we do kind of steal their resources and we don't pay a fair price. There is no fair price tag on the products that we are consuming because it doesn't include the environmental destruction and the environmental degradation mm -hmm. that comes with it. At what age did you become interested in climate activism? I think I was about uh, 17, 18 years old and I went to my first uh, demonstration and uh, I just kept the vibe of the demonstration and then I just was thinking, oh, that's something I would like to continue. And so I went to, to more demonstrations. At some point I started organizing the demonstrations and that by the time I was also studying environmental science, so I got more into the topic. I learned more about uh, the consequences of uh, ecosystems uh, and uh, how everything is kind of interwoven to each other, like the world, seeing the world as a web and we are just part of it. Yeah. And the way that we are acting is uh, not uh, really helping. So uh, I think uh, over time I became more radical in my activism until we uh, kind of occupied like a, a German uh, uh, coal fire plant. Uh, that was probably the most exciting one. <laughs> yeah. I have to say, well, it was just like looking at this area, like a lunar landscape as wide as your eyes can see. Mm -hmm. It was so huge. And it was mm -hmm. just like, it looked like a lunar landscape. There was nothing on the horizon. There was such a huge area of mountaintop removal where we just like cut off the entire mountain to wow. just get to the to the coal. And I think that was uh, the moment where I realized, oh, I really need to and want to work more on climate justice yeah. and do more to raise awareness about environmental destruction. I guess that's, uh, that's where I'm coming from. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> that's really cool. Okay, my climate activist friend, I've wanted to ask a climate change scientist this all my life. Well, not all my life. <laughs> I've wanted to ask them, since the phraseology changed from global warming to climate change, when and why was that done? Do you have any idea? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. And I have to say, I don't like both. You mean either? Like you don't like yeah, either one of them? Yeah, I don't like either. What would you call um, it? A climate crisis. Mm. I would call it like this because I believe that's what we are in and uh, that's uh, what uh, I would like to put more emphasis on in uh, raising awareness about the consequences and how much suffering our lifestyle actually produces. And I think that's where my activism came in is like, Okay, going on demonstrations, but uh, then becoming more radical uh, in terms of, okay, we really need to demand change. And how can we demand change is we are occupying uh, coal-fired power plants. We are chaining ourselves onto uh, certain industries. We are uh, getting into uh, general assemblies of uh, big companies, raising questions. What are you doing to limit global warming, to limit the climate crisis? And uh, it is interesting when you 
when you do this kind of activism because you're always being penalized. It's uh, there is because it's something that you're doing is illegal. And all I can think of is, uh, well, I'm just trying to point out the obvious. And so in my 20s, I was way more radical as I am now in my 40s. Now I'm more on doing environmental education workshops with the schools. I'm uh, uh, planning, like for example, the, uh, I was uh, planning in 2018 here in uh, Panajachel the first Climate Action Week. Mm -hmm. uh, so where I mobilize people to give talks, to talk about uh, composting, to uh, uh, do some uh, tree planting, to uh, organize a, a cleanup of the trash, just to raise awareness about the environmental problems that are here and now. And then I started working at the university on uh, giving lectures or giving classes about uh, environmental science, climate science, and I realized that there is a how would you say that? Like a lack of education. A lack of education, yes. And it's also a systemic problem here, huh? the educational system. And so I realized that my students have uh, difficulties to access information in Spanish. First of all, there are not many articles in Spanish yeah, about the, the topic. The language of the internet is English. And also, if there are articles in Spanish, there are usually really scientific articles, mm. which is really difficult for a normal person to understand. Yeah, I wouldn't so, read it because it's too hard. Yeah, it is. So what I started uh, in my teaching is I started drawing comics on environmental topics, and I realized how much of a change that is. Because if I gave my students a two-page uh, article to read, they were like, oh, no. I gave them a comic and all of a sudden I had a group of people sitting around it starting a discussion. Wow. And I was like, that's the medium for yep. people. Yeah. It's a visual, there is a little text, and you can start a dialogue. Yep. And I think that's what I would like to initiate, is mm -hmm. uh, initiating a dialogue about environmental injustice and about uh, social injustice that often is kind of linked to environmental problems. Yep. And I think that's uh, where I'm recently uh, am is um, working mainly on art and poetry to drive social movement. That's uh, my current uh, uh, my current desire because I do believe that uh, this can have a change in mindset. This can have a change in uh, the perspective. Like uh, the discussion that we had about the straw, huh? and you're like, oh, maybe I don't need a straw in my life anymore. Yes, you it's a very, me. very subtle discussion. It's a dialogue of uh, on on the same eye level uh, with everybody else, and you have to adopt the language of the person you are talking to. So if I use uh, uh, my let's say my science background and I just do some uh, word dropping, nobody will understand what I'm saying. Right. If I draw a comic about it, yeah. it's so much different. Everybody can see it. And uh, living and working in Guatemala, that really changed my perspective of uh, science communication mm -hmm. and how we can utilize uh, other forms of art uh, in uh, uh, driving this, uh, this change that might, be, uh, that might be needed. And maybe it's not in the pace that I would like it to happen, but uh, that's the pace that the world is uh, accepting. Well, it is. It seems like blog posts are becoming Twitter posts. Are <laughs> I mean, it's getting, everything is getting shorter and shorter with the attention span, I'm afraid. 
And it's because probably we go from email to Instagram to Twitter. Even you and I have communicated on probably three different platforms, right? I mean, we've known each other for three days and <laughs> communicated on three platforms. It's ridiculous. But. It is ridiculous, but that's also the development that, uh, that we have at the moment. That's the framework with which we are working. And uh, so we have to utilize uh, these kind of platforms to, yep. uh, uh, to help understanding. I think somebody's going to get very wealthy consolidating those messages. And I know Zuckerberg is working on the metaverse as we speak, but I thought it was going to be him because he bought WhatsApp so you can message on Facebook Messenger, you can message on WhatsApp. What, he acquired Instagram for a billion dollars. So there he's got, what, three or four of them. Like, why not see if you can talk to Twitter about getting Twitter DMs, you know, and just, like, <laughs> make sure that we're getting LinkedIn. Just make sure it comes in one place rather than having to check all these different places. But I know. I'm Maybe dreaming. that's the reason why I got really interested in the DAOs, the decentralized autonomous uh, organizations uh, that are kind of uh, operating outside of uh, governmental surveillance outside of religion, outside of age, outside of uh, all the restrictions that we have uh, in uh, building, let's say, NGOs, organizations to uh, work on a certain topic. I have no idea if uh, DAOs are the future or if uh, that is uh, even remotely a, a solution to the problem. But I can, at the moment, I do see it as a chance to form movements, to form groups outside of, of a certain area. So we can gather people from all around the world who are getting together, who are having the same mission, the same vision, to uh, create a better world, to create a better neighborhood, to create uh, better people. Yeah, it's interesting because if you wanted to create a, a community, you could do a Facebook group, but then you're missing out on the youngsters who are on Twitter exclusively because they don't want to be on the same platform as grandma on Facebook, right? <laughs> I know. I think we might head to a situation where, and I know you have interest in NFTs, but like you could open somebody's, go to somebody's wallet and see what it is they're interested in and message them there. Who knows? I mean, really, who knows what the future holds? Yeah. No, nobody does. Nobody knows. But uh, I think there are opportunities. And uh, for me, NFTs, they, are, they seem to be an opportunity to operate on a level that I haven't seen before. That is uh, um, on a blockchain to create more transparency, uh, to create uh, more community feeling. Let's, uh, let's keep it like this. And currently, I'm working on, uh, on a project uh, that's called Neighbor. What uh, we want to achieve is uh, to revolutionize the real estate market in the U.S. and tackling the lack of affordable housing by utilizing uh, NFTs to attract investors to build uh, uh, and renovate multifamily homes uh, where the majority of the apartments are going to uh, be offered to low-income families and only uh, like a, a small amount of uh, apartments, like 30%, uh, are being for short-term renters, let's say Airbnb and Booking.com. So you can have like a, a, a different price scheme for the different needs and the different types of renters. Mm. And also what we would like to implement in this project is uh, so-called uh, learn-to-earn 
uh, model, so I'm coming back to the metaverse, but uh, to create like a system where people can learn about how to, uh, uh, how real estate works, how property management works, and then uh, giving them the chance to own property at some point. So uh, I think there is a lot of chances and a lot of uh, possibilities with the NFTs and, and DAOs. If that's going to be the future, well, we will see what Web3 is, uh, can provide to us. Now, are you talking about owning real estate in the metaverse or in the real world? In the real world. Okay. So it would be like, it would be mainly a learn-to-earn model in the metaverse, so like uh, providing educational workshops in, in let's say, the um, space of the metaverse, but then giving the people a real opportunity to actually own property in the real world and to preparing people from low-income families with these skills and knowledge to actually help themselves because I think uh, not only in the US but everywhere in the world there is not enough education on, uh, uh, on lots of different levels. Yeah. The only issue I see and I'm not calling you naive but people in general act as though education is something that you can provide to people when really if you took the guy who just made us coffee and said I'm going to educate you on climate change it doesn't work that way like he still would have to have enough interest to go home and read about it or do the homework, for example. Like I, I told you I do Zoom coaching. There's a guy who refers me a lot of business and it's guys who move into his Airbnbs actually. So long story short, he, he's a stud guy. He moved from Portland down to Phoenix and he bought a house and he lived in the master bedroom and he rented out the other rooms and the casita, which goes to the pool. So it was kind of a luxurious house. And he bought it at the perfect time, right before it appreciated. But anyway, he's been under my tutelage of coaching since he was in Portland. He now believes in my coaching so much that he pays for these guys to be coached for two months. Mm -hmm. I think you were wondering uh, where that leads to. And I think when I, for example, look at my students here at the university in Guatemala, the way that I'm trying to approach environmental education mm -hmm. is transmitting my love for the environment, my mm -hmm. love and uh, my passion for being a climate uh, avant-garde and uh, a, a protector and conservationist uh, of uh, ecosystems. Because if I can show my passion to a certain topic, and, uh, and there they see that, they can then make the decisions for their own. I have seen over the course of the last three years teaching in Guatemala that uh, my students started to adopt my vocabulary, they started to adopt my uh, viewpoints, and you can say it's manipulation, but I don't think so. I think it is just education based on kindness and love and passion. And now what they have is an opportunity thinking outside of the box and starting uh, to transform that family businesses to become more ecotouristic. I'm teaching mainly in the sector of tourism. 
So uh, I have seen some of my students start talking to their families about how can they revolutionize their business to prepare tourism to be less polluting, more protecting to the environment, so that these ecosystems, why people are coming to Guatemala, are actually still existing in a couple of 10, 20, 30 years' time. And I think that's where education, I think, is a very, very important part to be implemented. And, it's, uh, and it starts with the really tiny children here in Guatemala, I guess everywhere in the world. I think we have to go more outside. We have to teach in nature. We have to do more ecological education. Because I do believe that we are living so far distant from nature that we do forget that we are part of it. And, uh, uh, and I think we have to get that back. We have to be in touch with nature. And uh, I do these exercises with my students where we go out and they have to be in the forest. They have to see what senses are talking to me. What do I smell? What do I see? What do I hear? How does it feel to touch a tree? How does it feel to touch the soil? Because a lot of uh, my students, they don't do that anymore. We are so detached from nature. When you're living in a big city, it's like a concrete jungle. You yeah. barely see a tree anymore. Mm-hmm. But that's where we, have, where we find our connection. And I think we have to get back to this passion, back to this love to nature in order to transform our systems that is based on uh, our connection with, uh, with nature. That's, uh, that's all I, I have to offer is uh, uh, transmitting my passion. And I think that's what I'm trying to do now with art and uh, Uh, drawing and uh, writing poetry about it because when I look at nature I'm just fascinated all the time of how wonderful it is and all the living and non-living beings they do have their life cycle like a a tree is growing from a from a seed it looks like a dead object a seed you put it in soil and you give it a little bit of water you give it a little bit of nurturing and all of a sudden, there is this tree sprouting. <laughs> and, and if you're lucky, there will be fruits on it. And it's, that's a very fascinating process. No, yeah. So whenever we look at our coffee, we see the entire universe in it. Huh? Uh, because the coffee was grown, there was a seed, the coffee plant growing, there was someone who was uh, taking care of the coffee, there was someone harvesting the coffee, there was someone who was transporting the coffee. So when you look at it, how much effort and how much of the universe is in a cup of coffee, it's incredible. But we have to look at it. And I think that's where I see we are very detached. Love it. Most of what these guys want coaching on is how to be confident, how to have conversations with people the same way that we met. And what I explained to them, and it's so interesting that I'm not sure which day we met. but On a Thursday. On Thursday, okay, so that was after my calls this week. But this happens all the time where I meet people. And they're like, well, I'll see an attractive woman, and I won't know what to say to her. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what you say to her. I said, I promise you, once you get to know each other, neither of you will remember what was said initially anyway. It just doesn't matter. So if you want to be confident and attractive, so a lot of these guys want girlfriends, I'm like, be open, smile, and just give them a chance. 
that's a mind frame change that'll change everything for you if you think give them a chance to show you that they're friendly or whatever mm-hmm. you know what I mean so I have no idea what I said to you when I met you but it, it doesn't matter you know I remember what <laughs> you oh. asked me to take care of your laptop while you go to the bathroom that's exactly <laughs> right yes one of the guys I gave him homework I said I want you to meet two people and I want you to come back next week and tell me what it is that you learned about them because I want them to do more talking than you do. That's important because most people talk about themselves and they're self-obsessed, but it can happen where you do 10% of the talking and the person comes away from the conversation saying, that guy's an excellent conversationalist. All you did was inquire about them, you know, and let them talk about themselves which is usually people's favorite thing to talk about. So That's something I learned in Guatemala, to be a better listener, mm-hmm. because I realized that people here, they have a lot to talk and nobody who's listening. Mm. So And it's the same when I teach at the university. It's the same. I feel these students, these young people, have they, they want to express themselves, but then there is no platform. Mm to actually talk and nobody is encouraging them to talk either so in my class everybody is happy I do 10% of teacher talking time uh, that's uh, that's my rule uh, and I do believe that uh, listening to people is very essential well and it's it's such an underrated skill and people don't even consider it so if I were to send a book to someone, to one of my guys, one of my, I call them kids, but they're 20-somethings. If I sent a book to one of my kids, in the inscription, I might write something like, if you love to read and you're likable, you'll be unstoppable. And it's a motivator, but I want them to get to thinking about being likable and what that entails. And usually it entails taking an interest in other people. I can only agree. (laughs) So your NFTs, are you making your comics into NFTs? Well, I have a couple of different ideas. So I do environmental comics that I just post on Instagram, and they're mainly focused on Guatemala and uh, environmental issues, social issues here that I see here in Guatemala. And then uh, my NFT art is... uh, also partially focused on uh, on Guatemala so I have a couple of social poems that I wrote that are accompanied by uh, by NFTs and for this neighbor NFT project in uh, in the US I am developing uh, different characters so uh, I am getting inspired of who do I would like to have as a neighbor and who would I would like to build a community with and it's such a pleasant work honestly I've spent so much time on uh, uh, drawing like little characters uh, uh, at the moment because I'm so fascinated of envision the community that I would like to create and there is a lot of diversity there's all the races there's all the ages there is disabilities uh, all kinds of people I would like everybody to be welcomed I think that's uh, how I see the world everybody is uh, has value I can learn from everybody I would like to create a community of unity friendship and value I think that's uh, kindness have you heard of Charles Murray 
I have not, no. He's a British author. He just wrote a book called The War on the West. So there are so many books that I would recommend to you that would give you, if you were open to it, to the opposing view. Is that something you would even be interested in, like the opposing view, or are you so confident in your opinions that that's not something you're willing to entertain? Or there's this phenomenon psychologists call political motive asymmetry, where individuals think their ideology is motivated by love and the opposite is motivated by hate. Do you think you have any of that? No, I don't think so. I am happy to uh, sit in a room and uh, have a discussion with someone who's uh, totally having an opposite opinion because I feel very confident in my opinions until yeah. you prove me wrong. Yeah. Uh, but I'm open enough to uh, listen. I probably don't engage so much in, let's say, some of the viewpoints, like, for example, the flat earthers. Uh, I do have read some articles, uh, peer-reviewed articles about uh, why the earth is flat, and uh, it kind of makes sense what they write, but physically and from what we know, I can be very confident that the earth is not flat. So there are some arguments where I'm just like, okay, I do acknowledge if somebody wants to believe in that and I can agree to disagree. Yeah. But yeah, no, I think I'm very open-minded. But see, with me, I don't know that I'm smart enough to argue the points. I would have to refer them to books that I've read. And the other thing is having a conversation like the things that I've expressed today, you would think that I'm on the opposite side. No? No. Okay. That's interesting <laughs> no. because most people do, and I don't know that I am. I just like knowing both sides of the argument, and to me, it seems like you wouldn't enter into an argument, not that we were arguing, but you wouldn't enter it unless you knew both sides already. I wouldn't feel comfortable in a discussion where I didn't know their opinion, but I know their opinion already. Primarily, it's not, it's not a braggadocious thing. I'm pretty much bombarded with it in mainstream media or school or wherever. So you have to seek out these alternative viewpoints, like the example you just brought. I don't look into that stuff because I, yeah, I think it's, it's not worth looking into, but maybe I should. I, I don't know. <laughs> that, that, one's, that one's pretty far out there, though. Yeah, that, that's not something I, I would probably waste my time on. But if someone who I respected and someone who was well-spoken, articulate, uh, knew their stuff in other areas of life, and they came to me and they said, you've got to read this book like Dr. Peter Atia did to Joe Rogan. He said, you've got to read this book Unsettled by Koonin is the guy's name, K-O-O-N-I-N. You've got to read it and it totally changed his viewpoint. And then what happened was he was bombarded by the climate change advocates saying you need to have somebody to counter that view and he did the very next episode he had somebody who interestingly was not interested in a debate because the science was settled 
And it's like, I can't believe he just said that because the author of Unsettled, of course, offered to debate. But the guy threw out some things uh, throughout. The, the guy, the first guy, the, the author of Unsettled, said things that were mind-blowing, like somebody talking to another climate scientist who said, hey, I, I, I read chapters 7, 8, and 12 in your book and totally agreed. And he said, oh, thank you. Would you mind us coming on a podcast? And he was like, I would never say that in public. Well, I can't imagine that there is this one book that would change my viewpoint on climate change mm -hmm. that is based on a lot of scientific articles that I have mm -hmm. read in my life and I have contributed to the, mm -hmm. to the science to. Mm -hmm. uh, because that's what I did my PhD in, uh, mm -hmm. is uh, climate change reconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so this one book for me doesn't exist so if there is not a majority of scientists who would agree on a, a drastic change of, of a viewpoint i would probably be very suspicious of it but i mean you didn't want to talk about covid but you remember the lab leak theory i do doesn't that sort of thing make you think well the who was in cahoots with china could there be like i've never questioned the science of climate change more than what happened following COVID. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't even let us into the country to find out what happened. How could that be? And, and there's more we could talk about there, but we're not, you don't want to talk about it, so we're not going to, but the parallels there are just unbelievable. But we Things do have- that you're going to hide. Yeah. And that's what he ran into. He was like, yes, this is a fair point and this is a good point, but we can't expose this because it would give ammunition to the climate deniers. So it's scary. It's like, oh, so we... I mean, we do have so many data sets that are backing up our climate change, our global warming theories. Uh -huh. We do have very independent uh, records Right. Uh, we can also prove that, the, let's say, the background noise of uh, climate fluctuations based on the Milankovitch cycles, based on uh, volcanic eruptions that might have uh, an effect on global warming, we can rule that out because we do have enough data points, we do have enough climate models, and we do have enough independent uh, climate researchers from all over the world right. who have contributed to the big picture that we see today. And so uh, the fact that humans are responsible for an increase in greenhouse gas emissions, yeah. I think that this is a fact that we just cannot uh, talk away. I think that is a very settled point. It is, yes, and he would agree with you. Yeah, so... He agrees on that. So I think human-induced climate change, for me, is off for debate here. Human-induced uh, climate change. Yeah, see, he agrees with that, though. Yeah. And uh, we have climate models that are predicting what is going to happen with certain ecosystems based on physical parameters, based on how we know ecosystems work. For example, uh, going back to uh, uh, ocean warming, we know the ocean has a certain capacity for absorbing CO2 
carbon dioxide from the atmosphere mm -hmm. under a certain temperature range. Yeah. If we increase the temperature of the water, we know, based on physics, that the absorption capacity will decrease. And so uh, with warming climates, we are reducing the carbon sinks, which means we will have more greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere, which is uh, driving higher temperatures. You know what's so interesting about, you've said the word physicist more than once early in that podcast. Joe Rogan says to him, now you're a physicist. And he's like, well, yeah, but you can't be an expert in everything. And so I wouldn't, I don't remember exactly how he said it, but don't negate or invalidate my opinion just because I'm a physicist. I've done this, this, and this. You don't have to read the book, but I'm going to send you a link to the podcast so at least you can hear things you haven't heard before. I think that you would appreciate get a it. kick out of that, yeah. <laughs> maybe I get a kick out of that. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe you get a kick out of it. Who knows? What is the biggest advantage of modern nuclear power plants versus like Chernobyl or Fukushima? Well, let me start. This is really not my field of expertise. Okay. What I have read and how I made my opinion about uh, the modern nuclear power plants is uh, they could be a solution for limiting global warming because uh, they are more climate neutral. I put them in parentheses yeah. uh, because uh, they are emitting much less carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases. The newer or modern power plants, what I read, uh, they are also utilizing, they are producing way less nuclear waste, so we have to deal with less waste products, which we don't have a solution for, I, I know that. But I guess from what I know, uh, and again, this is not my field of expertise, I can see nuclear power plants as an alternative, short-term alternative to fossil fuels until we build a grid based on uh, renewable energies uh, like uh, sun, so, uh, solar, uh, wind, uh, geothermal, and so on, just because we need an urgent climate solution. I think that uh, the generation of electricity based on nuclear power could uh, be in favor for the uh, grid that we are having, because uh, we know that uh, at the moment storage of electricity with unavailability 24-7 with solar and wind could lead to grid instabilities. So that could be like a backup nuclear power. And uh, the more modern uh, nuclear power plants, there are, at least of what I read, there are safer and uh, less polluting. Yeah, so in addition to that podcast, I would want you to read something about the predictions of running out of oil and how that the likelihood is so entirely slim hurricane season he'll talk about on that podcast a lot of the damage a lot of I should say a lot of the fear-mongering done with regard to hurricanes is based on for example the two billion dollars in damages but those numbers have gone up only because there are more humans and more damage to be done in those areas take Manhattan for example mm-hmm but yeah, I, I love to be the guy that exposes people to different points of view, but they usually won't read it.
like for example, there's a book by Theodore Dalrymple called Life at the Bottom, and it compares the underclass of America to the underclass of Britain. And what it proves, basically, is it's not skin color, it's culture. Because we're talking about black skin in America and white skin in Britain. And it does a great job. He worked as a clinical psychologist, I believe, at a, at a mental health hospital. And he's just a great writer, and he's funny, and it, it just gives you an insight into a world that you don't get very often. So I recommend that book. I've recommended it to several of my very leftist friends, and they'll, they'll read 12 pages of it and say, well, I can tell it's biased. I've gotten those same words when I recommend Thomas Sowell, who I'm sure you've never heard of. He's an African-American economist who is, you read him and, and it all makes sense to me. Like, it's like, oh, this is so common sense, but leftists won't read that sort of thing because, I don't want to say because they think that they know it all, but they've been bombarded with information all their lives from one side of the aisle. And I, I don't know if I ever finished what I was saying about my 20s, but I thought everybody read information from both sides. And I'm like, oh my God, no, people don't do that at all. <laughs> and it's because of, I mean, not, and believe me, I'm not accusing you of this, but I think it's a lack of emotional intelligence, like allowing the emotions to overwhelm the intellect to where you can't absorb the information or you won't allow yourself and that's why I brought up Sam Harris earlier, because growing up as a Christian, I read The End of Faith, which is one of his books, and it scared the shit out of me. And I wanted to remain a God-fearing person and therefore put the book away and wouldn't read it. And so that's kind of how I relate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and kind of feel like uber-leftism is a religion because you can't have a conversation without them not liking you like if you even if you just bring up the points they don't like you anymore like I've lost Facebook friends and I knew I would and it's just by bringing up the points like oh well have you thought about this like the, the comment I made about equality earlier the fact that I believe that a rising tide lifts all boats yes the rich got richer but when I went to a townhouse in South Africa, they wouldn't let me give the kid money. Like I wanted to, it would be, I could provide for six months for this guy by giving him the change in my pocket, but they wouldn't let me, like the guide. He said, we don't want to create a culture of dependency. And I'm like, wow, that's so admirable. He said, yeah, the people that live at the front of the, town, the township, which they paid 25 rand a month, which is the equivalent of like $30 a month, and it's just like a metal shack, and it's like 2,000 of them put together with a dirt floor. And I wanted to give money, and they wouldn't let me. I would assume that working in Switzerland as a scientist earned you quite a bit of money to where you were able to come here and do this, right? Absolutely. That's awesome. Absolutely. I mean, Switzerland is crazy when it comes to the economy. I was working as a scientist and also as a consultant at some point uh, in Switzerland. And since I always had like a minimalist lifestyle, I really didn't spend much. Mm -hmm. So I could create like a financial cushion 
to uh, now also decide to go into a sabbatical and just uh, see where my art leads me to. I'm very, you. very grateful. <laughs> and that, that's your upbringing, don't you think, that gives you that mentality? Absolutely. And strength? Absolutely. I think yeah. growing up in poverty was uh, one of the... I don't want to say it was a fortune, but uh, it did gave me some strength to not fall into the trap of consumerism. So I'm always thinking twice. Oh, can I afford that? Oh, maybe I should not. Same here. My dad left when I was 11, and without going too deep, it's the only time he's ever told me he loved me. My mom didn't have a job. I didn't know where money was going to come from. He moved out of state, started a new family. But I became very entrepreneurial, and I could give you examples for days of things I did, like buying boxes of basketball cards for like $40 and then selling them for $2 a pack, and there were 36 packs in a box, so I'd make $32 on that box, and then I'd just reinvest it and then reinvest it, and I'm like, this profits are better than wages. <laughs> so yeah. I was never going to be a wage slave where I give you eight hours of my day and you give me $100. I was never going to be that guy. So I don't know if we ever cleared up. So do you, you think that indirectly white people are stealing resources from people of color? Well, if you want to phrase it like this, I do believe that uh, the global north is responsible for the exploitation and the poverty in the global south. You yes. say exploitation. By exploitation, I would think that the south is not agreeing to provide those resources in exchange. Like it's not... It's well, there is a lot of corruption in the global south. So you have leaders who are basically selling the natural resources, but the people on the land they didn't agree on it benefit. they didn't yeah. agree on it right they only not benefiting from it they did not agree to do that mm. and i think uh, that's the problem when you look at all the mining workers in the global south this is uh, a very dangerous job these people barely get minimum wage there is no uh, work security uh, nothing and uh, they are digging these minerals out for companies who are not in the country. There are foreign companies from foreign countries, and they are turning that mineral in something so valuable that people who are working in the mine, they don't even know what they are digging out of the ground sometimes. Mm. And that this is then being transformed into a computer or a, a cell phone that is being sold for hundreds of dollars. So I think that's the injustice uh, that uh, I don't want to contribute. So does that mean you wouldn't buy an iPhone? I got my iPhone secondhand. I'm trying to reduce all my purchases. I cannot say that I don't have it because uh, under the circumstances where I work on, I do need these devices. So I, for example, I do have a laptop that my last laptop I had from 2008 to last year. Mm -hmm. That was uh, quite a, a long time. And yeah. uh, last year I decided, okay, it's time for a new one because it really got slow. I got it repaired several times. So I think I can justify getting a new laptop. And uh, as I said, my phone is secondhand. Yeah, I'm trying to be conscious about what I do. I don't say that I'm carbon neutral, but I'm trying to have a low carbon footprint and uh, I'm trying to use as uh, little resources as possible. Yeah, the reason I ask, of course, is because 
it is believed that Uyghurs in China are being genocided and probably are making parts for the iPhone, but who knows? We, it's very difficult to get honest information from China. There is no transparency in the supply chain of most of the companies. Everybody is trying to kind of greenwash or social wash uh, their company. Nobody wants to talk about the bad and the ugly, huh? You think that's that's Apple, though, or is that China? That, that's, I think it's uh, it doesn't matter if you can put it. You can say it's Apple, Microsoft, whatever. I think it's uh, it doesn't really make a big difference. All the monopoles and all the big industries, they are not communicating in a transparent way. But you wouldn't blame the Chinese, huh? Even after. What happened with the... I think I would not blame a COVID. single nation. I think it's a systemic problem mm -hmm. and it's not a single source problem. That's how I see it. Mm -hmm. I think we created that China might be corrupt. We created that the government in Guatemala is corrupt. That's the way that we in invented our systems. So, yeah, I don't think that uh, I would blame a single nation. I think uh, we are all the result of uh, what we created. And so there is not a single person or a single nation or a single race to be blamed. It's a collective. But you said white people in the email. I do. I do. I do. I do believe that uh, the people from the Western countries uh, should be held more accountable. What would you think if white people ever took pride in their history or their culture? That would be awful. Huh? I mean that's happening in Europe at the moment. Really? Well, I do. I do see there. Is, we are going back in history. There is mm. more right-wing uh, uh, movements, uh, more nationalist thinking, mm -hmm. and I guess that the more geopolitical conflicts we have, the more we are trying to protect our own country. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not a. I'm not an expert in politics. Uh, it's just how I see. How I see the world is: the more problems, the more environmental and social problems we are creating, the more we are distancing ourselves from our neighbors, mm. and uh, and that's a development I don't like. I just don't want to see that. I would like to be more befriending other nations and being grateful for the diversity being grateful for the differences. I think that's where we can start nourishing ourselves from because we are not just Germans and Americans. We mixed our genes already. There is no such thing as a German anymore. Yeah. So we are humans, we are world citizens and some of have a more upbringing, uh, a more fortunate upbringing than others. And I was, uh, I can be grateful that I was born into a German system and some people like here in uh, Santiago Atitlan, they're really unfortunate that they were born into that. Yeah. But who decided? Who decided that I was born in, in Germany and they were born here in Santiago and that there is such a difference? I think that's uh, something that is just not fair. Two people did. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> that's true. The accident of birth, but no birth is an accident, right? Yeah. So interesting. Because the, uh, in that book, or no, uh, it was the Charles Murray book, he says, uh, what does he say, in the war on the West, that the only thing that you can't be now is a white male. It's 
especially a white Christian male, oh, yeah. the only <laughs> group that it's okay to talk shit about. And what he says, and he says this very poignantly in a way that I won't do well, but he says at some point they will have had enough. And after that point, things get very, very ugly. And that's something we should fear. But right now, they're taking it, right? Like, you would have never sent me an email talking about, you would never have said black people or brown people, but you had no issue saying white people. Because I am white. Fair enough. <laughs> but don't you make it acceptable for others to do it too? I mean, people thought the same thing with the N-word. White people started using it and found out quickly they cannot do that. I see it all the time, and I don't know if it's a white guilt or what, but when white people have had enough, it's, it's not good, because every group seems to solidify except for white people. Sensitive topic. Yeah. There was a 70-year-old woman that died of diabetes in Canada. She lived in a caravan, and there was a heat wave that came through and the doctor put on the death certificate that she died of climate change. How about that? Okay, <laughs> let's do some fun questions. Yeah, because I have also have to leave in like 20 minutes. Yes. Would you rather win a Nobel Prize or $2 million? Oh, that's an interesting... I think I would take the $2 million and reinvest it into a better future. <laughs> <laughs> If you could meet one person, who would it be? Thich Nhat Hanh. Who is that? That's a Buddhist monk. I think uh, that would be a very interesting person to meet. He was uh, dedicating his life to bring peace. He was a big environmentalist. He was giving uh, lots of lectures on uh, uh, love for nature and uh, how we as humans, uh, uh, what is our part in, in nature. So I think uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. You are openly pansexual. What does that mean? I don't care about the gender. You're equally attracted to both genders. To all genders. Male, female, non-binary, transsexual. I really don't care. I'm interested in the person and into the personality. And have you always been this way? I guess so. I think uh, when I was a teenager, there was just not a name for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah. Well, is there still? Because LGBTQ... Plus. Oh, you're the plus? You're I, the I would be considered as the plus, I guess, yeah. Okay. <laughs> If you were guaranteed the best sex of your life, which would you choose as your partner? Like in terms of gender, you mean? Yeah. I have no answer to that. I really don't care. As long as it's good. Huh? As long as it's a good personality. I'm interested in people, so I need a, a connection with people mm. first in order to have uh, good sex, I guess. Got it. Do you like dogs? I do like all animals, I would say. Not particularly dogs. I do have a cat at the moment in my house that belongs to the house. So the house that I rent came with a cat, so I like the cat. <laughs> <laughs> If you could spend a month anywhere in the world and costs were no issue, where would you go? Ooh, where would I like to go? I think I would like to go to Argentina because I have never been there and I'm feeling that could be a really nice place to just spend a month, yeah. Would you go to Buenos Aires 
the Iguazu Falls or the Patagonia region? I think the Patagonia region. Mm. I'm a big hiker. I love hiking and I love nature, so I guess uh, Patagonia would be a good place to be. I couldn't agree with you more. I have hiked Patagonia and there was a mirador, am uh -huh. I saying that right? Yeah, a mirador. Where I just started singing Pearl Jam and that's never happened to me. I, it just came out, I just started singing. I was on a hike by myself and yeah, that, that's never happened before or since. If you could only bring one album on this one month trip, which band or group would you take with you? I have to say I'm listening to a lot of electro music. EDM uh, kind of music? Yeah, I would, I would probably take a genre with me, okay. not a particular album. If you could take one book, what would it be? So I would take with me Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet by Thich Nhat Hanh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Zen and the Art of Motorcycle, whatever, because that's a popular book that I couldn't get through, by the way. Is there a book that you wish everyone would read? No. On a scale of 1 to 10, how confident are you? I would distinguish personal and professional. I would say uh, personally, uh, maybe a 5. Professionally, I would give myself like an 8.5. <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of 1 to 10, how proud is your family of you? I think the older I get and the more contact we have, it increased on the scale, and I would say it's a 10. Wow, that's wonderful. If I gave you $100,000 and said you had to give it to a charity that you've never been associated with in any way, which would you choose? That's a tricky question. I don't really trust in... <laughs> ah, I, I don't know, I don't know. I think there is no, no single charity that I... I probably would rather split the money and give it to several small I'm I, I don't believe in big organizations I do think that small-scale organizations have better uh, solutions for local problems so I would probably invest smaller amounts in smaller which organizations you have proven with what you've done with regard to sanitation which we didn't even talk about there's so much more to read about her I'm going to include it in the show notes but we are wrapping up because she needs to go do you think your last name has played a role in how kind you've been throughout your life? Yes. <laughs> I was always bullied as a child about my last name because kind in German means child. So everybody was bullying me about, oh, how childish you are and stuff like that. So how they, do you pronounce it there? Kind. 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 Like kindergarten. Ah, you know, see, that's the connection. Uh -huh. And uh, the older I got, the more I like my name because it's, uh, yeah, it's kind in English. So I got introduced to conferences a lot. Oh, I kindly introduced Miss Kind or it's my pleasure to uh, Dr. Kind, please, uh, please come and give your kind talk. So there is a lot of word playing with my name, which I really like. And uh, I think one of my values is uh, I'm trying to be as kind as possible to myself and to others. So yeah, it's a good reminder. How did you get your English so good? And then I'll have one last question after this. Thanks for the compliment. <laughs> well, I studied in English. My PhD was in English. When I was uh, living and working in Switzerland, I would say that the majority of my surrounding was uh, 
non-native English speakers. So we all make the same mistakes in English. <laughs> and uh, yeah, practice. I'm reading a lot in English. I do write my poetry in English nowadays. So I speak uh, several languages. I speak uh, German, Russian, Spanish, English, and uh, I learn Sutahil, which is a Mayan language. So I like languages. Amazing. Okay, Jessica, how can people find you or your work or your art? anything you'd want them to know about on the interwebs where can they go well i have uh, accounts on all social media uh, instagram facebook uh, twitter i am on discord and uh, i have a website and i'm pretty sure that you're going to link it into the show notes but my website yes. is jessica-kind.com and uh, my twitter is uh, kind signs uh, that's uh, the that's the name that I use to uh, publish environmental comics. Uh, kind because of my name, science because I'm a scientist. I thought it was a good wordplay, kind science. And my social art, I publish mainly under the synonym be kind. <laughs> so it's like kind science or be kind. That's uh, you can find me on social media. I'm the redhead and- uh, With blue eyes. With blue eyes. <laughs> Very good. I knew I'd enjoyed this conversation, but it was better than I anticipated. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It was a pleasure. Really Likewise. fun. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. I know you could listen to anything in the world, but you chose to listen to Jessica and I, and I can't say thank you enough. So please, if you enjoyed this episode, share the link with a friend, and I will talk to you next time. Thank you, listeners. Bye-bye.